Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. I'm Sabrina Imbler. Sabrina, welcome to the show. Woo! Thank you so much for having me. Uh, listeners, uh, Sabrina is one of my favorite science writers, uh, truly, and they just wrote a really excellent book that I know our listeners are really going to enjoy. Uh, so we wanted to have them on to talk about some of the weird stuff you might find in there. Sabrina, would you like to tell listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and the amazing book you wrote? <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. Um, yeah, I guess I uh, am a science writer. I write for this website called Defector, which mainly covers sports, <laughs> um, but I have my own little column where I write about creatures. And I had a book come out in December called How Far the Light Reaches, which is an essay collection about sea creatures and also myself, uh, where I attempt to tell my own story alongside like 10 sea creatures. Although I should say, um, as this is a science podcast, one of the creatures is a goldfish, not technically a sea creature, but they do live in estuaries, so uh, cuspy. <laughs> Have you uh, have you gotten any reader feedback being like, I was promised sea creatures only? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. And maybe no one really minds. I just feel like when the subtitle was proposed to me, like how far the light reaches a life in 10 sea creatures, like there was the, the part of me that was like, oh, nine. <laughs> it's just nine. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. And um, I'm really excited to, to hear some maybe weird creature facts i i presume um about ocean animals or otherwise so let's get into it on the weirdest thing i learned this week we start by each offering up a little tease that we found in the course of reading writing reporting etc and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was Sarah Kylie, what's your tease? Okay, well, today I'm here to talk about how Neanderthals probably had no idea how stinky they really were. R relatable. <laughs> uh, Which is relatable. <laughs> um, sometimes I wish I had less of an idea of how stinky I was. Um, <laughs> my tease is that I want to talk about um, a group of 18th century dudes, pals, um, who hung out in very hot rooms together in the name of science. Awesome. That sounds relaxing. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> they've heard listen i it's not many things that dudes in the history of science did together that i can say like the vibes seem like they were good here but it seems it seems like the vibes were pretty good there um sabrina what's your tease my tease is um, I want to talk about how whales can be like cities on the seafloor. Um, and those cities can be around for thousands of years. Ooh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> New whale city. <laughs> Rents are steep here. <laughs> Sarah Kylie, um, I want to hear about some Neanderthals first. I would love to get started with that. Yay! We love stinky stuff. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about stinky Neanderthals. Um, well, Neanderthals probably weren't that stinky compared to other stinky things, but they just didn't know, probably. That's the whole gist. Um, but if someone has ever unfortunately told you that you stink and you are woefully unaware, um, then you're probably aware of the fact that um, human noses uh, kind of monitor out our own body odor so you don't smell that bad to yourself even if you're like friends and roommates are like you stink um which is a blessing and a curse um the way this works is quite simple it's not that you don't stink it's that you're so used to your own stink that it doesn't phase you anymore which is a little bit scary (laughs) in fact it's like kind of like comforting and familiar to have your own stink so i mean if you were constantly sniffing yourself you'd probably have like a breakdown because of all the sensory input of all the stinks of your like microbes and your sweat and your farts and your bad breath and all of that. Like, if you would just smelled all of your smells all the time, it'd be horrible. Wait, can, can I just do an interjection? Which is yeah. to say yeah. that earlier this year, my partner had a stink intervention for me. <laughs> because Oh my gosh. <laughs> I sweat so much at night, and I think that I am just accustomed to this, and I, yeah, am not really smelling my own stink. And they, like, sat me down, and they were like, I need to tell you something. And I've been thinking about it for years. And then they told me that I just like stunk a lot and needed to, um, yeah, like wear a different shirt every night so that like I wasn't wearing <laughs> the same stinky shirt, which maybe makes sense, but I wasn't thinking about it. So I just want to say that I can really relate. <laughs> and um, I, I, yeah, I resonate with the Neanderthals now. <laughs> it, is yeah, a, no. it's, it, it shows such... Um, such like care and love in my mind for your partner to do that because it's a difficult thing to intervene on and also it's it's nobody's fault sometimes we just smell (laughs) bad i had a friend in college who we had to do something really similar where it was like listen man we love you and it's starting to become like a known fact that you that you stink up a room how did he take it (laughs) not well (laughs) and in our defense he had literally not been showering because he felt he had discovered that he didn't need it it was a whole oh no listen the human mind is is an incredible uh organ and often a self-sabotaging one but yeah like (laughs) we tune out so many senses because otherwise like how would we ever um do anything do anything yeah so yeah so lesson number one from my story if you have a friend or loved one that stinks Tell them kindly and tell them that you also can't smell yourself. So by telling them that they stink, you're also asking if you stink. So it's reciprocal. (laughs) I thought of one other relevant thing, which is that um, a friend of mine um, was was not born or raised in the U.S. And he came to school in the U.S. and um, his roommate was like, what deodorant do you use? (laughs) And he was like, oh, that's not we don't really do that. And he was like, so... Um, I think you should try it. <laughs> and he was like, as soon as he started using it, he suddenly was like aware of the difference. And then mm-hmm. he went home and his little sister broke his deodorant and he was, how do you, he like did not deodorant? have access to deodorant. Um, I'm sure he could have gotten it, but it's he, just that little, cl- the, yeah, little she, like, I think okay. she just like, she was like messing with him. She like probably threw it away. And he was like, now I know I smell. And we were insecure about it. No, and it was um, it was such an unfortunate situation. And of course, his little sister was like, you're crazy. You never used this before. Why? And it's true. You know, his his roommate both ruined his life and saved his future social interactions in the U.S. But 
I it's feel like relative. it's that moment when you're like inside Plato's cave and mm. you're like, these are shadows. <laughs> and then you're like, yeah. I can never go back, but I am mourning like the life that I led, the simpler life. <laughs> the simpler <Yeah>. life. Oh. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, well, this is go. So we'll get back into the world before deodorant, um, <laughs> where you couldn't even have like a pesky sister break it. You just stunk. It was just stink time. Um, but yeah, so you get used to your own stink. That's why you don't notice it. But um, and it's not just your own stink. After a while, eventually you get used to like stinks in your you know area. Like if your roommate like makes Brussels sprouts all the time and it always smells like Brussels sprouts, like you'll probably eventually get used to it. Or like if your dog has like particular rancid toots like you probably like are pretty used to them after a while even though sometimes they can be really bad but um smell is a difference detector which is actually something that um a psychologist Pamela Dalton said to you Rachel like uh 10 years ago in an article that I found which is always my favorite (laughs) thing to do I'm like surprise (laughs) but um was that the pheromone article I wrote I don't I don't know it was in the Washington Post it'll be linked in my thing (laughs) <laughs> okay, but okay, I believe you. I'll I'll take your word for it. <laughs> It'll be somewhere. It was something. Um, but yeah, so um when something smells different, that's kind of when your nose comes into play. So if something that doesn't smell like your BO or Brussels sprouts or dog toots happens like in your vicinity, you're like, oh, what is that? Um, your brain figures it out. Um, Cause yeah, if our brain went, oh no, to every single time we sniffed ourselves, um, it'd be crazy times. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Dalton um, said these, these um, smell receptors turn off the ones that are like smelling your BO and stuff. Um, and they eventually die and get replaced um, before our, usual stinks start sm- to smell stinky again so they you do st- smell stinky to yourself every once in a while but those things turn off die and revisit apparently what th- a life i know <laughs> like fascinating stuff and apparently if we didn't if this didn't happen we'd all lose our sense of smell by the time we were one so very well. exciting stuff so all your stink um detectors are dying and rebirthing and smelling things so um and there is a rumor that has popped up a few times throughout history that humans have a bad sense of smell but honestly like it's not that bad like when we compare our sense of smell to other animals we've just like adapted differently like we don't like sniff the ground looking for truffles like pigs or sniff other animals butts (laughs) and stuff like that so humans have done pretty okay with the smell that we've been given without having to do stuff like that so we'll give our sense of smell a little bit of credit for the next bit um but yeah just in the same way we don't smell the same way as truffle pigs and even like when you're talking about dogs like how bloodhounds sniff something versus like how a chihuahua sniff something um everybody has different sniffing techniques and capabilities um within a species um between similar species yada 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 but um a couple of scientists um recently reconstructed odor receptors from the genomes of three neanderthals one denisovan an ancient human and a database of modern human genomes in order to kind of figure out how our ancient cousins sniff stuff in comparison to the way we do it today. And y'all probably know, but I'm going to do a little a little debrief on who our ancient relatives are, just in case there's somebody out there. Um, but Denisovans were an ancient human that about 765,000 years ago shared a common ancestors with Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Um, this population basically split eventually. Homo sapiens stayed and hung out in Africa, while Neanderthal Denisovan types moved towards Eurasia. 430,000 years ago, um, Denisovans and Neanderthal splits. Um, Denisovans went into Eastern Asia. Neanderthals went into Europe. So that's the basic gist. So why they split? Um, there's one idea that this an- the Arctic ice sheet like broke um, and s- expanded into the Black Sea, which cut Europe off from Asia and then divided the two. So they turned into two different things. Um, but uh, Denisovans, Neanderthals, and ancient Homo sapiens were still like hooking up with each other. Um, so there's all of this stuff uh, you can get, dive into it whenever you'd like. But um, 5% of the Denisovan genome lives on in people living in Southeast Asia, um, especially Papua New Guinea. Neanderthals contribute like 1% to 4% of the genomes of non-African modern humans based on where your ancestors came from. And like 40,000 years ago, that would have been as high as 6 to 9%. So we're different, but not that different. Anyway, back to stink. Um, So the scientists took and they looked at three different olfactory receptors across the Neanderthal, Denisovan, and ancient Homo sapien genomes. And they found 11 
receptors in the ancient humans, meaning Neanderthal Densovan, um, that had unique DNA that didn't appear in modern Homo sapiens. So they built out these unique receptors in a lab by mutating human receptors to match the amino acid sequence of the Neanderthal or the Denisovan. So they had a bunch of different little things set up. So they had three different Neanderthal samples, the Denisovan, yada, yada. So we've got a couple of uh, lab-made noses of ancient people. (laughs) And so voila, ancient noses. Um, And then they wafted a bunch of stinks around these receptors in the most scientific way possible. Um, So I don't know how one would do that when there's not a nose, but they figured it out, which is amazing. I love science. Um, And then they watched and like saw which receptors lit up with activity um, accordingly with the stinks. So what they found is all three of these cousins, you know, the ancient homo sapien, Agent Neanderthal, Agent Denisovan, they had kind of the same range of smelling. There was no, like, sniffing superpower, so n- nobody was, like, a, a, a truffle hunting, sadly. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> sensitivity levels had, like, quite the range. Um, Denisovans, and they had more of a sensitive nose than humans, especially when it came to sweet stuff. Um, floral scents didn't, like, hit quite as hard, so they weren't out sniffing the roses, but they were four times better at picking up sulfur smells and three times better at picking up balsamic smells, with, like, which are, like, vanilla, chocolate and they're also balsamic re- smells apparently that's what it's called but i i that's an iconic category <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> balsamic smells What's yeah. your favorite kind of smell balsamic smells <laughs> balsamic makes me think of vinegar so i don't know but we'll see but they're really good at smelling honey too and so i was reading a bunch of articles about this so this research came out i think like in January, so earlier this year. And um, insiders Morgan McFall Johnson put it in this like perfect little anecdote to talk about the Denisovan smell. So this is what they wrote. So if you walk through the woods and pass a beehive, you may catch the sweet scent of honey in the wind and suddenly be flooded with memories, having tea with grandma or eating warm biscuits on Sunday morning. If you were taking that walk 300,000 years ago with a Denisovan, by the time you smelled that honey, your companion might have already been climbing up the tree for a sugary sweet. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's kind of the difference, I guess, between how we perceive honey versus how our Denisovan cousins would have. But Neanderthals, on the other hand, had a different weakness or like maybe it's a strength. I don't know. Um, they couldn't smell body odors as well as Denisovans or humans. Um, one Neanderthal that they tested actually had a genetic mutation that really slimmed down their ability to smell known. But it's a chemical. Classic. Whatever that is. Um, It's a chemical we associate with urine and sweat smells. So yucky smells. Um, And so one out of the three Neanderthals that they tested was like literally genetically mutated. So they couldn't smell sweat and urine, which these guys were living in caves, which like totally cool. I'm basically living in my basement, which is a cave too. So we all do it. Um, But you know, they're all probably like living pretty close to each other and in each other's space. And so we didn't have deodorant. So nobody's sister could even break it. There was nothing going on. So <laughs> it was probably pretty good that the Neanderthals weren't like losing their minds over how stinky everybody was. Um, so superpower or weakness, you can decide on your own. Um, and to be fair, the Neanderthal nose with the mutation rep- represented a population living in the high altitude of Siberia. The other Neander noses didn't have this. Um, and in all actuality, the Neanderthal noses only had two different smell-related genes than humans. And so there's obviously a lot of caveats with this study. So we got to go over them. But um, so take it all with a grain of salt or a pinch of honey is what I've also called it. <laughs> um, obviously, the sample size is tiny, like one Denisovan, three Neanderthals, one ancient human. And considering your sense of smell is like different from individual to individual, there's always the sure. chance that the noses recreated here aren't the average nose. Like if someone was to recreate like Anthony Bourdain's nose compared to my nose, like it would be very different. Like he's like a legendary chef food expert. And I regularly get excited about air fryer chicken nuggets. So there's just <laughs> there's going to be some diversity going on. But at the end of the day, the gist of the story here is that our sense of smell isn't that different from our ancient relatives and if someone tells you your bo is especially funky one day at least you're probably not living in as much denial as you would be if you were a siberian neanderthal and that's that (laughs) i love that it's really this whole time i've been thinking about like the kind of ongoing debate over whether you know deodorants without antiperspirant or without something 
you know, really effective, like a baking soda, et cetera, or like um, certain kinds of acids, whether you actually have an adjustment period where you get less stinky or you have an adjustment period where you notice your your stink less. (laughs) A lot of companies that make the most like gentle natural deodorants will say, oh, it's going to take like two weeks for your body to stop overproducing all of that really (laughs) melodious bacteria and then it'll Mm -hmm. work. And it's like, I will say that, uh, you know, for any for anyone who uh, wants to be able to sweat, uh, but also does not want to smell bad, no sponsorship here. But the Mega Babe, uh, they have a sensitive skin baking soda deodorant, which is the only one I've used that has not made my skin fall off my body. And then they have another one that's basically made with like, um, it's got like AHAs in it. So it's like the same kind of stuff you would use on your face for acne, Ooh. which is really smart because that's, you know, it, it eats up the the stink bacteria. Um, anyway, also it's fine to be to be stinky. There's there should be no shame. I'm pro stinky. It's, it's fine. I'm very pro stink. <laughs> I just get annoyed when really expensive uh, body care companies try uh. to convince people that it's totally just that they smell less and not that they're just getting used to smelling. Like, worse. <laughs> don't go crazy over the prices of deodorant. Do what is best for you. And if that's is stink, stink with your whole heart. <laughs> yeah, stink with pride. Has anyone here used crystal deodorant? I haven't. I have known people who did because I went to a very hippie liberal arts college. Um, I definitely have been told by people who use it that it works better than a lot of <laughs> alternatives but i don't know i have no data on that i have no idea yeah. what that is <laughs> i guess i like uh, yeah like i also have been in crystal deodorant circles i have not part partook in myself but i think my mind just like can't compute the idea i'm like imagining like a rose quartz like yes, in a right. pit just like scrubbing a pit and i'm like that doesn't make any <laughs> sense but maybe this is like i should just read more about it, it and not just being judgmental <laughs> I mean, like, I don't think you're wrong. I think many people who sell crystal deodorants are basically selling people like, like crystal. a gua for your pits. Like, yeah, but I think I think it's like more like a block of Himalayan salt on your armpits. Like, oh. there is some there is some transfer of of substance. High risk. I don't want to put salt near my armpit. Listen, <laughs> oh I am not a crystal deodorant expert. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get so much hate from the crystal deodorant community, but uh, no, only love for the crystal deodorant. Um, somebody somebody explain it to me though, please. Yeah, <laughs> how, how's it work? No one knows. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
okay, we're back. And uh, Sabrina, I want to hear about whale cities under the sea or wherever they are. I don't know. Where are they? (laughs) They're definitely under the sea, although I would love to see a whale city on land because I would promptly move there. um, And (laughs) I hope it's walkable. Um, So I am here to talk about whale falls, um, which is basically the phenomenon of when a whale dies in the ocean and sinks to the bottom of the seafloor. Um, And like as early as the 1920s, 1930s, like scientists had wondered like, hey, like when a whale dies, like where does it go and like what happens to it? But there was not really... um, the technology to visit the seafloor and observe it themselves. So there were just a couple of like speculative papers and no one really thought about it after that. But then in 1987, there was just like this routine um, survey of the seafloor in the Pacific Ocean. And sonar picked up on this like enormous uh, sort of linear thing, just like remains um, like thousands of feet below the ocean. And it turned out to be a 65-foot-long whale skeleton that had just sunk to the bottom of the ocean and was just being feasted on by, like, clams and mussels and limpets and snails. And this was scientists' first encounter with a whale fall, which is um, a very common phenomenon because, as you might expect, like, whales mostly die in the ocean. (laughs) Um, And when they do beach on land and we do weird things like blowing them up or, like, trying to bury them, like, it always goes bad (laughs) for us. Um, But whale falls are actually really interesting because in the deep sea, there is, like, basically no food. Um, Lots of organisms that live in the deep sea just are accustomed to going, like, long stretches of time without food. Um, And there is sort of this constant rain of food called marine snow, which is basically, like, tiny bits of organic matter and, like, flesh and poop and snot <laughs> that mm. sort of drifts down yeah <laughs> like, i mean delicious. I, I, <laughs> speaking of stinky <laughs> um i know it's kind of like i feel like i imagine like cloudy with a chance of meatballs but it's just like poop <laughs> oh i've always horrible. found the the term marine snow to be so beautiful for something that literally means like crumb crumbling floating flesh <laughs> and poop <laughs> but I know it is it is really beautiful it's like who's that like what's Marine Snow's PR person and like <laughs> they should be making a uh, killing um, but I mean it's it's like so so beautiful if you just look at those like footage from um, like the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute of like you know a strange creature sort of drifting and it's like just these little white flecks like it is it is so beautiful and then you think about you know, it's poop and snot. And you're like, poop can be beautiful, too. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So essentially, marine snow is like falling constantly, just this drizzle of food. But you can't really like subsist easily on marine snow, especially if you're like pretty large, um, because it is just kind of eaten <laughs> as it falls. So if you're on the seafloor, it's like you're just getting like the the shred, the tiniest shreds of poop that like no one else <laughs> wanted to eat. Mm. So when a whale falls in the ocean, it's like a buffet. It's like, I always think about like <laughs> on blizzard. Survivor. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, do you watch Survivor? I love Survivor. <laughs> yeah, I think about it as like the merge feast where it's like people have Ooh. been starving for weeks and like they are hungry and you just like put out this platter of like a suckling pig and like uh-huh. <laughs> their eyes just like glaze over. Um <laughs> So that's how I imagine like a whale fall, uh, it, it, what, the, what the reception is on the deep sea floor to a whale fall. It's like a food oasis and it can support just like communities of marine organisms for decades. Um, wow. Yeah. And I, I read somewhere in the process of researching my book that one whale fall from like one of the nine great whales, meaning like the really big whales, so like blues, grays, fins. Um, that can bring about the same amount of organic material as a thousand years of marine snow. Oh, it's a blizzard. It's a it's blizzard. A blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> we eat <them> tonight. <laughs> but yeah, so more about these cities. So Whale Falls have three uh, really famous stages and one like fourth secret stage that is my favorite stage. <laughs> but we'll come to that later. Um, 
The first stage is called the mobile scavenger stage, and it basically works as you might expect, like a whale sinks, it's fleshy, it's blubbery. Um, Deep sea creatures like from very far away can smell the odor plume that is being emitted from the probably, well, actually definitely very stinky (laughs) carcass. Um, And they can also hear, right? Like sound travels really, really easily in the deep sea or in the sea in general. And you can hear like a shark just like going to town. And you're like, what is that shark eating? Like, I want to know. I'm going to I'm going to swim on over. And so this is the stage where organisms that can move (laughs) mobile um, scavengers just like go to town on the carcass. So there are sleeper sharks and like fish called rat tails. There are hagfish. There are isopods, which are like the roly polies that get really Mm -hmm. big and kind of purple and like (laughs) live on the bottom of the ocean. And they just like chow down on the whale. Um, Chunks of flesh are going everywhere. Like if you've ever seen footage of this stage, it really it's like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm glad I'm not there. It's like pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this stage, it lasts for up to two years because whales are just so big. Um, So like, I don't know, it just it's wild to me to think that like a shark could go and like eat eat this whale, but like just not be done for months and months and months. Like that's how big they are. And then the next stage is called the enrichment opportunist stage. And this also lasts for like up to two years. And this is the stage where the like weirder creatures get involved. (laughs) So one of my favorite stages, Um, but essentially from like this very messy feeding bonanza where everyone's just ripping off chunks of flesh, like, they're just sort of nutrients embedded in the sediment surrounding the whale skeleton. And so that means it's worm time. (laughs) And they're just (laughs) like... Worm time! (laughs) Worms, like polychaete worms, just slithering around in the silt, like eating the nutrients in the silt. Um, There are also some crustaceans called comma shrimp going to town, like bacteria sets in. Um, There's some leftover blubber, like people, not people, creatures are feasting. Um. And once that stage is done, then it's like the weirdest stage, which is called the sulfophilic stage, um, which is a word that whenever I like, whenever it's used in a like interview that I'm doing and then I put it into my transcription service, it always says self-fulfilling, <laughs> which <laughs> I think is kind so of beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more fulfilling than sulfur. Um but this basically is a stage where there are there is still like a lot of nutrients, but they're trapped inside the whalebone. And so mm. this is another kind of worm time where these creatures called bone eating worms basically colonize the whale skeleton. And they look really strange. They kind of look like little red palm trees um, from the outside. And then um, they sort of have a trunk. And then at the bottom, there are these like green roots um, and they what? burrow their green <laughs> roots and also like their gonads like inside the whalebone and then they secrete an acid to dissolve the bone and then eat the oil inside with the help of symbiotic bacteria. <laughs> the ocean floor is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Okay. I'm going to have a nightmare about that later. <laughs> like I mean, I really think the theme of this episode is sulfur. Who can smell it? Who's interested in it? Um, But they're, I mean, I think they're cute. They just are like these little worms with like feathery plumes, like the red, um, the little red, like gill, like um, plumes at the top of them. But they're quite small. And so when you like look at a whale skeleton, it can almost look like there's like a red shag carpet over the bones. Like that's how many worms there are. Just going to town, eating the oils. Um, And kind of like deep sea anglerfish, these worms have like a cool um, male-female dynamic where female worms are the ones that you sort of see with like the big red plumes. They're eating, they're they're secreting acid as as they do. Um, But males are really, really tiny. They're called dwarf males. So kind of like how, you know, female anglerfish is really big and the males are very tiny and will sort of attach to her body. A similar thing happens <laughs> in these bone worms where like one female bone eating worm can have like tens of just little dwarf males like attached to her, um, which I love. You love to see it. <laughs> Why have yeah. one boyfriend when you can have 10 miniature boyfriends? Just yeah. tiny little guys. <laughs> They're just short kings. <laughs> they are short kings. 
I yeah no I there I wish that more short kings were like this short. <laughs> um, but these worms actually like evolved around forty million years ago, which is around the same time that like whales evolved. So they definitely like evolved um, alongside whales because they just depend on these mass windfalls of bone to subsist to yeah to continue. Um, which is also kind of sad because when I was learning about whale falls, um, I was also just looking at whales in like the North Atlantic, which is where whaling happened famously and tragically. Mm -hmm. And this one researcher, um, Craig Smith from the University of Hawaii, he's like the whale fall guy. He found the first one. He just knows more about whale falls than like any other person. Um, He estimates actually that like, after whaling removed just like thousands and thousands of whales from the waters of the North Atlantic, um, like today's population of whales, I think is just around 25% of like pre-whaling levels, mm. that like ripple of death sort of caused the secondary extinction of like up to a third of these communities that specialize on whale falls and have mm. evolved to sort of depend on these spontaneous and yet kind of like expected you know windfalls of food like you never know where it's going to be or where it's going to like fall in the ocean but there will be enough to sustain your your species um and when I learned that I I don't know I have like a tender spot in my heart for any creature that is like soft and doesn't fossilize and like I just felt really sad that we were not going to know all of these like potential bone worms or like other kind of worms that that lived and thrived and now are probably no longer. Yeah. I was talking to someone recently and was made a reference to, you know, Hudson, New York being an old whaling town. And they were like, what? That can't be right. There aren't enough whales to support a whaling town near Hudson. I was like, yeah, that's because of all the <laughs> that's whales. That's the point. <laughs> like, where do you think they are? <laughs> like, what? Oh, no. That's so funny. Yeah, it was a real bummer. <laughs> Did you see that there are dolphins in the Bronx again? I saw. I hope they're having a great time. I know. I was like, congratulations, but like, stay safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess. So I I mentioned earlier, there are like three well-known stages of whale fall. But then there's one last secret stage, which was my favorite. And like when I first learned about whale falls, I guess just by virtue of like loving the sea, Um I didn't learn about this one until I was actually doing my research, but it's called the reef stage. And it basically begins when every part of organic material like inside the whale has been, you know, feasted on by the worms or the bacteria. And it's pretty much just like bone, um, which you might think like the whale has already given so much like this whale city was, you know, like Austin. It's like a center <laughs> of culture. Um, but is now, you know, it served its purpose. But the thing about the deep sea floor is that it's like mostly mud and silt, Mm. which it's fine if you're an octopus, right? You're like going around or like a fish, you can swim. But if you're something like a sponge, you can't just like live in mud. Like there's nothing to (laughs) hold on to. (laughs) And so these, um, sessile creatures really depend on hard substrate to, root somewhere like larva is always looking for hard substrate to root onto and there are like rocks in the deep sea there are polymetallic nodules um but a whale a whale skeleton can also be like really valuable substrate and Mm. so there was like this um uh, everything in the deep sea is like a submersible was somewhere (laughs) at some point and saw (laughs) um just this like whale skeleton that appeared to be thousands of years old because it was encrusted in manganese um which is like a it forms when um it's like a chemical precipitated out of seawater and sort of why everyone is really interested in polymetallic nodules for deep sea mining but this whale Mm -hmm. skeleton was encrusted in manganese and there were just these like three anemones just sitting on top of the whale just filter feeding like ready for whatever marine snow would drift by um And yeah, this whale skeleton was like thousands of years, but was still a city in a way, maybe like a hamlet. (laughs) Um, But I was like, that's so special. Like whales just keep on giving. Um, 
And that is my that's my fact about Whale Falls. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like um the anemones are like on like the Roman Colosseum of whale cities. Like they're like, oh, it's so nice. It's old. The really cool stuff's happened <laughs> here, but I'm still gonna chill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's really amazing to think about um a life cycle that has like that long of a tail, you know? Like uh, um it's just it's certainly not like the way we think about um life and decay uh on land today and yeah it's just amazing to think of like this mass of creature that like you know needs to take so much energy from the ocean to support its big big massive wonderful blubbery life and then (laughs) it gives back so much for so long (laughs) it's very lion king like vibes but in the ocean that's beautiful. Yeah, the whales are not short kings, but we do love them. <laughs> They're big boys. It's all good. <laughs> Amazing. All right, we're going to take one more quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back, and um, I'm I'm going to talk about some some guys in the 1700s um, sawing. Uh, Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So this story comes from a paper uh, I read about in the Public Domain Review, which is a, a really fun place to tool around, uh, looking at weird images um, and stories from history. And it's called Experiments and Observations in a Heated Room, which sounds like the name of a one-act play, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which was my first thought upon seeing it. And that was why I clicked and had to learn more. Um, and frankly, I think the 1774 paper probably should be turned into a one-act play. Um, it was by British physician and scientist Charles Blagden, and it recounts his experience uh, being invited to the home of the scientist George Fordyce to see the man's very, very hot roof. Um, <laughs> that, that's all that happened. Uh, nice. Fordyce had constructed, um, and this is uh, 1774, uh, he had constructed a series of like fairly well-sealed rooms um, that were basically saunas. Like they had stoves and pipes radiating heat into them and thermometers mounted on the walls. Um, I wasn't able to find much about like what the interior of the room was like. And I I wish we knew more because I feel like it probably was really silly in there somehow. I don't know. I just feel like it must have must have looked silly. But According to uh, Blagden's paper and the sequel he published in 1775, um, which I think was literally called like More Observations from a Heated Room. Uh, <laughs> sequel. He, yeah, yeah. Re- really, really brilliant, creative mind. Um, he and several other gentlemen worked with Fordyce to 
test the limits of the human body with regard to heat. Um, and they started out just like hanging out in a 100 degree Fahrenheit room, which is not particularly impressive. And there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, he writes about Fordyce first, like demonstrating to them. And he like walks in and he like immediately like starts taking objects of clothing off. And there's a lot of writing about like how much he was sweating, just like sweat everywhere. <laughs> oh wow. My God. That's so me wet. every single night. So <laughs> I get it. This is, this is just yeah. 100 degrees. Like this is just like somebody's room in New York. It's in true. This is just like your your radiator is on and you don't have the window open. But <laughs> Um, so yeah, not particularly impressive. Uh, and their initial observations were like pretty banal, like, wow, he's sweating. Um, very, very like British. They were amazed <laughs> at the concept of heat. Um, but by the time they finished their second bout of experiments in 1775, they had worked their way up to 260 degrees Fahrenheit. So, um, okay. quite hot, genuinely. Um, and they made a lot of observations, uh, again, that seem obvious now, um, in addition to just like, wow, he sweat a lot. It was hot. He didn't <laughs> like it. Uh, they noticed that uh, at those higher temperatures, it was actually more comfortable to have clothing on than to be naked since the radiating heat would like literally scorch the skin much more quickly than it actually raised core body temperature. Um, <sighs> and of course... This is something that people who lived in hot places already knew. You know, we see uh, lightweight, full coverage clothing in, you know, many um, desert cultures. And that is now like the wisdom that you are given when you are going to a a hot, sunny place. Like you don't that you don't want the sun radiating onto your bare skin. Um, that will make you feel even hotter, but you do need it to breathe so that you can sweat and yeah, that that also relates back to um, another pretty major finding. They recorded their own temperatures and they demonstrated that while body temperature did raise given time in a hot room, it didn't go anywhere near as high as the room itself. And like now, of course, we know your body temperature doesn't go up to 260 degrees. You would be super dead. Um, but that was really a revelation at the time. You would um, be cooked. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, keep it's important to keep in mind that um, the first thermometers designed to measure human temperature only even showed up in the 1600s, and they really weren't a part of standard clinical medicine until the 1800s. So the fact that they were even measuring their own temperatures as part of this experiment was like pretty novel. And um, so, yeah, we can't uh, rib on them too much for not knowing that like you wouldn't just become 250 <laughs> degrees in a hot room. And at one point, and this is the best part, um, to prove that this was due to something about living bodies and not some failure of the room's heat to, like, be hot, um, they brought in both a dog and several oh. steaks. Um, so the dog, like the men, was, like, fine in the heat. And they were able to measure his temperature, <laughs> though uh, some historians are, like... He's not sure how accurate that was because the dog kind of gave him a hard time about getting the thermometer in. <laughs> the dog's like, I um, hate the hot room. <laughs> yeah, no, like, I don't think I the dog likes here? the hot room. And I don't, this is the one aspect of the experiment that I don't love, but the dog was fine. Like they did not, okay, okay. they did not leave the dog in distress. They like brought the dog in, you know, uh, sat with the dog in the hot room and they were like, yeah, we're all kind of, you know, we're getting warmer and like our heart rates are going up, um, but we're fine. And um, the steak, which Blagden argued <laughs> was made of like the same basic stuff as the men and the dog, which is not wrong. But it's one of the more interesting kind of control groups I've ever seen for an experiment. Um, the steak got thoroughly cooked. In fact, even quite dry in the hottest room. So that was his way of showing like, it's definitely like hot places, heat things. So there's something about a living <laughs> body that like keeps you from heating up. And again, this was like a big deal. Like no one had really shown this. I will say that like obviously uh, people who lived in hotter climates had by necessity certainly figured a lot of this out. But um, 
this was the first time somebody was measuring temperatures in a room. And again, for men in Britain, it probably was truly a revelation and not just the first literal confirmation. And yeah, they also noted that they could tolerate higher heat in drier rooms um, and correctly surmised that this was because water carried the heat to the body more efficiently than air and that sweating, which is more effective when the air has more room to take up moisture and evaporate your sweat, was the key to the body's heat-destroying powers. Um, that's another thing. Blagden kept referring, referring to the body's ability to, quote, destroy heat. Um, destroy it. <laughs> it just, you know, not quite right. But, you know, he was he was on to something that, like, sweating was key and um, the dryness of the air affected your ability to sweat efficiently. And that, like, there was something that living bodies could do that, like, kept the heat from heating them. Um, so it really was, again, like pretty novel. I mean, this is a guy who the other thing he's known for is being he was he worked with two of the scientists at the center of what was called the water controversy, where they literally were arguing about who had figured out that water was a compound and not like an element. Um, like chemistry <laughs> was so new, modern chemistry yeah. as we know it. So really all of these questions were like completely um unanswered up until this point at least in terms of like formal um data-based science so yeah this guy being like you heard it here first the human body can destroy heat um <laughs> was it was not as silly as it sounds to us now um and again he was uh one of maybe the first Western scientists to connect sweat and thermoregulation. Um, but again, it's very reasonable to assume that people living in hotter climates had figured this out because they sweat a lot and it was hot. Um, but the vibe of this paper is so delightfully bewildered. Um, like these guys clearly were like, oh my God, no one has ever moved from a hot room to a cold one at such speed. Like, this is innovation. Um, <laughs> just really, you get the sense that they were giddy with um, th this self-experimentation adventure they were on. And given the general tendency in the history of medicine and science for folks to experiment on other people without their informed consent, I have to say that excluding the inclusion of the dog, who I hope at least got to, like, eat the steak afterwards. Exactly. Um, I do find the image of these dudes hanging out in saunas together to be like pretty charming and wholesome, um, relatively speaking. I think it's worth pointing out that they were being a bit obtuse about the temperatures previously endured by humankind. Uh, in his initial paper, Blagden actually made a reference to um, the experiments of M. Tillett, which it was the botanist and metal worker uh, Matthew Tillett. And in 1760, Matthew had been trying to figure out how to heat green enough to kill pests without actually damaging the green for consumption. Mm -hmm. um, and he ran into trouble with his data because he was using a thermometer attached to a long shovel uh, to get the exact temperature inside these like giant baking ovens he was using. Uh, but the temperature went down in the time it took to take the shovel out. And at least according to the way he wrote it down, the girl who was tending the oven was like, I can just walk in and like mark the level of the thermometer with a pencil for you. And <laughs> apparently said she felt no inconvenience in the 288 degree furnace. Um, and then he and his colleague proceeded to basically goof off with a bunch of random items in the oven <laughs> to see how the heat affected them. They like, baked eggs in there they they stood in there they like waved their arms around and they were like oh my watch is hot but my skin's not hot what's up with that um this was in 1760 so just a few years before the sauna boys had their their little adventure um and yeah blagden notes that the maiden question endured temperatures of 280 degrees and up for like more than 10 minutes and he basically seems to be saying that he thinks girls who work by hot stoves probably get used to working by hot stoves. And it seems like <laughs> this is his nod to the very obvious reality that he and his friends 
did not actually find and test the upper limits of human heat endurance. Um, <laughs> but other than that, he does seem to like be kind of ignoring the fact that many people live in hot places <laughs> and, um, he, you know, that it's it's just kind of a, a silly, a silly little sauna jaunt. Um, we now know that Blagden was very correct about the importance of moisture in the air. Uh, the more humid it is, the less heat we can take before our bodies start breaking down because uh, we're not able to dump heat back into the air by way of evaporating sweat. So I guess we do kind of destroy heat by <laughs> perspiring in a way. Um, yeah, so a forecast of 120 degrees Fahrenheit in Death Valley um, can be as physiologically tolerable as like a sub 90 degree day in a swampy area like, you know, D.C. Um, and so listeners, if you don't know, um, maybe you've been seeing the phrase wet bulb temperature more often. Uh, I will link to an explainer on wet bulb uh, on popside.com slash weird. But uh, that's becoming a more common term in weather forecasts because it's a measurement of the combo of heat and humidity. And it's uh, the number that matters in terms of how dangerous it is to spend time outside. So once it gets to 95 uh, Fahrenheit wet bulb, give or take a couple degrees, like we are in trouble. Um, and at 100% humidity, we reach that level at um, only around 87 degrees Fahrenheit. So it doesn't have to be very hot for uh, things to get very dangerous. And conversely, like that's why you can sit in a sauna and enjoy it. Um, or not based on how much you like sodas. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it is important to remember that like the, there is a big difference between the temperature you can endure in a dry room versus um, a, a humid one. Uh, in 2010, at the last ever World Sauna Championships, uh, there was a contestant who died and another one ended up in intensive care. And that was in a sauna that was, you know, only 230 degrees, but it was a wet sauna. So that's incredibly dangerous. That is way hotter than than is safe. Um, I had no idea there were sauna championships. Does that well, just test like how long you can sauna for? Yeah. Yeah. So this the world championships, um, you know, there may be smaller competitions that have been around longer and are maybe still around. But this one, I think it was from the 90s. And that last one was in 2010 because it was um, such a needless tragedy. Right. But the idea was it was very much like um, an endurance thing um, because it, it is really an endurance sport to like sit in a sauna yeah. longer than everyone else. Um, but yeah, they just literally sat in saunas that were very hot and you you wanted to be the last person in the sauna. Um, and unfortunately, uh, both the the two finalists really, um, they said they were fine uh, until one of them was very clearly not fine. And um, that contest has has not continued since then for for obvious reasons. But yeah, it's um, a steam room is not a, not a sauna. <laughs> So yeah, know your limits and hydrate, hydrate, hydrate so much. Um, on a lighter note, to wrap us up, um, I have a quick aside about the guy who built the hot room, Dr. Forday. Because yes. I was like, who is this man? And um, the thing is that like I, I didn't find anything about like his journey to creating these hot rooms. What I found about him is that he was memorialized in a local restaurant guide in the early 1800s <laughs> for having an absolutely bananas diet. Um, of course. So uh, there was this restaurant um, at called Dolly's and <laughs> he ate there every day for more than 20 years. Uh, he had decided based on his research in anatomy that man had become accustomed to eat more often than nature actually required. Um, and that actually, like a noble lion, a man should just eat one <laughs> big meal a day. Which is like a TikTok about snake meal. I don't know if I, I think about snake meal a lot, but um, he did snake <laughs> meal. And so he did this experiment, experiment uh, by going to his favorite restaurant every day at four o'clock for decades. Um, he would come in, he would sit down and they had a spot reserved for him because he was the four o'clock snake meal guy. And um, they would give him a 
tankard full of ale, a bottle of port wine, and a quarter pint of brandy. And okay, uh, right? <laughs> where's the food? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. So, but it's not good. So, <laughs> as soon as he arrived, the cook would would start cooking the meal he always ate, which I'll get to in a second. But he would start with a you know a little appetizer, which would be sometimes half a broiled chicken, sometimes a plate of fish, um, and then once he finished that. Uh, he would have a glass of brandy and then he would be delivered a pound and a half of rump steak and he would devour it. And this is from the restaurant guide (laughs) from the 1800s. We say devour because he always ate so rapidly that one might imagine that he was hurrying away to a patient to deprive death of a dinner. Um, I guess he was trying to be like a liar. (laughs) Oh my gosh! And also, okay, it's probably hungry. Sense. You know, he he only ate once a day, so he was probably very hungry. And at this point, kind of drunk. Yeah. <laughs> so he would eat a pound and a half of uh, red meat um, that had been preceded by half a chicken, and um, then he would finish drinking. Uh, he would have drank all of the booze, the uh, the brandy, the port, and the tankard of ale, um, and. That would take him about 90 minutes altogether. And he had an always, he always had a six o'clock chemistry lecture. And so he would uh. um, go there, <laughs> apparently not take a nap. Uh, he would just go give a drunk chemistry lecture with the meat sweat. And then that he wouldn't eat again until the next day at 4 p.m. Um, is that related to the sauna experiments? No, but it also tracks for me. I think... It, that it totally is, makes sense to that me. That is the man who would build a series of hot rooms and then invite all his scientist friends over to test them out. Wow. Um, Whenever I learn about like an ancient guy, not ancient, like a like a like a <laughs> you know an antediluvian man, yeah. guy like that, I'm always like, what were his poops like? His right? poops were yeah. probably crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> Horrific. Horrific. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I do have a. Some I have a friend who sometimes speculates that when people go on like all meat diets um, that aren't like well balanced all meat diets with mm-hmm. like a bunch of you know um, fats and organ meats and stuff. But when people are literally like, I switched to eating only ground bison and now I'm so amazing, it's like they probably have like they probably have like celiac or like IBS and they were like eating a bunch of veggies that weren't good for them. And they think they're just like, they think they've, um, they've unlocked the secret to life and, and the universe and everything. And really they just like, shouldn't have been eating broccoli and everything else was fine. Um, something I think about a lot, but yeah, no, I, <laughs> I also wonder what this man's, um, poops were like. Um, I wonder what is what his breath was like. I wonder what his 6 p.m. chemistry lecture was That's like. That's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is uh, that is the story of, of the Sauna Boys, and who actually learned quite a lot um, and and did it with a, with a great attitude. <laughs> so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I... Honestly, I almost am ready to give up the concept of us picking a winner at the end of every show because I always, I always <laughs> like everybody's facts so much. Um, I, I mean, oh, I interrupted you. No, please. I'm going to say maybe I'm suffering from recency bias, but the diet of that man, <laughs> I will think about <laughs> for days. <laughs> no, I want to watch the biopic on the sauna boys. <laughs> like, I'm going to like... Who is going to play the meat man? <laughs> wow. Imagine if it were truly like a black box theater production and the whole theater was heated as well. So you could like feel <laughs> like one of those yeah, dirty experiences. <laughs> yeah. You, everyone awesome. has to drink a mead. <laughs> just the meat smell. Um, There's just steaks cooking in the corner. <laughs> that's that's when you know the show is over. There's... <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Sabrina, remind listeners uh, where they can find your book. 
Yeah, my book is called How Far the Light Reaches. You can get it at um, any local bookstore. Please don't get it from Amazon um, if you can. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun and I'm like scared to eat beef again because it's become something <laughs> repulsive <laughs> in my mind. Just make sure you have a pound and a half. You'll be fine. As, as, you, as you long just as I start with, with a chicken, yeah. half a chicken to prime the pump. <laughs> the weirdest thing I learned this week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.